I've never heard a sermon on the ascension of Jesus. And so it's a really scary thing to try to preach a sermon that you've never heard before. This week I've asked like a dozen or so people, you know, generally older than me, been Christians for a lot longer than me. If they've ever heard a sermon, not one of them has. So buckle in. Yeah. You don't have to be uh, around the church too much to hear sermons about Jesus' birth. You just go at Christmas time or, um, you know, maybe even the prayer that he taught his followers. That's pretty common courtesy, currency. Certainly his death on the cross. We did seven weeks on that uh, for Lent. Hopefully his resurrection. In certain types of churches, the sermons might even major on his coming again. But it seems like we've skipped something major in not talking about the, ascent, the ascension. This past Thursday represented a, the church's feast day of the, ascent, of the ascension, 40 days from Easter when the resurrected Jesus would ascend into heaven, this mysterious moment. So I'm going to invite Holly to come up and read uh, a passage from, from Luke um, 24 when he tells us about this, this strange, strange story that no one likes to preach on. You can use the mic. (laughs) Reading Luke 24, 44 through 53. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Thanks, Holly. What, what a strange story, and, and they, they don't seem to be too deterred by it. Perhaps the reason we don't talk about it is because we're embarrassed by it. We don't know what to do with the strange story of Jesus flying up on a cloud. We stand around like the actual disciples who witnessed it, In Acts 1, uh, Luke tells the story again. It says, a couple of angels showed up to Jesus' disciples, and they matter-of-factly say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? You know, angels. Maybe we haven't talked about ascension because it doesn't fit in how we think about heaven and earth or what we think about resurrection bodies. Maybe not having thought about the ascension is the reason we have these seeming discrepancies. Maybe not having on Jesus, not having focus on Jesus' ascension hurts our understanding about how Jesus can be both present and absent to us. One of the reasons I, I kind of wanted to, to tackle this is because I have to look Noah in the eyes before bedtime when I tell her, Jesus is always with you, you don't have to be afraid. And she says, yes, Jesus is always with me. But where's Jesus? 
And I say, he's always with you. And she says, but is he in my room? Kinda. Today I want to think through a few of these things and start to see what Jesus' ascension tells us about heaven and earth, about absence and presence. So first, what the ascension tells us about heaven and earth. In short, heaven and earth are made for each other. I don't think that's, that's necessarily the first thing when we think of. We've all heard that 80s um, bit of brilliant merging of theology and arts from theologian Belinda Carlisle. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth, right? <laughs> the ascension does complicate things about heaven for us. We, we really, you know, the, the incarnation and then the resurrection complicates things. And the ascension further complicates things. In our minds and imaginations, we've separated heaven and earth. They're like oil and water. God's space and our space. It's, we've separated them so much, it's hard to imagine how made for each other they are and how one can, in fact, show up in the other. We've lost the, the storyline of the Bible, the story of their, their overlap. Starting in the garden when God breathed his divine spirit into the earth, forming Adam, who with Eve, humanity's parents, walked with God in the cool of the day, conversed with him and learned from him, loved him without fear and shame. God and man not only coexisted, but they existed for each other, with each other. That garden represents that perfect marriage of heaven and earth. A marriage which then meets a great divorce when the first man and woman started a tangled cycle of disobedience and sin and death. Heaven and earth needed to be held apart because they're no longer compatible. And this is mostly an earthly problem, right? No longer being fit for heaven. It's seemingly they were divorced for irreconcilable differences. But God, that's like the greatest two words in the Bible, but God. But God, the reconciler, in his grace, gave little glimpses for his people of what it might look like for this intersection to reoccur. And this is even before Jesus. These little thin places where heaven and earth line back up not just like ethereal, emotional signposts, but physical, tangible, brick and mortar, flesh and blood spaces, temple and tabernacle, the holy of holies, where God might reside with his people and they with their God. Heaven and earth might kiss. And then at Christmas time in the incarnation, where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled with us, set up his tent, put on flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood. When Christ came in the form of a vulnerable child born to an unwed teenage peasant, heaven and earth reunited on a mission to further reunite heaven and earth. And Jesus' ministry here on earth in real places with real people and real problems. That was to initiate that overlap, to further that. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught his disciples, he taught us to expect this, 
to hunger and thirst for this, to pray for our lives and our hearts to be geared towards the expansion of heaven on earth. That the Father who art in heaven's kingdom may come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Christ died on the cross for our sins and in our place, and then the Spirit of God raised him from the dead as the first fruits of what it might mean to be a human who's no longer a slave to sin or fear or death or lack. He included us by showing off a new floor model of a heavenly body. Think about that paradox. That's an oxymoron. A heavenly body. Like Adam the human, but better. Adam 2.0, the last Adam, the perfect mix of divine breath in earthly flesh who would mend heaven and earth, reuniting them, spreading God's rule and reign rather than dividing them and tearing them asunder like Adam did. In Jesus' resurrection body, we find that heaven and earth are made for each other. In his incarnation, we find out what it would look like for heaven to come down to earth. And then in his ascension, we find out what it would look like for earth to come back to heaven as a part of God's rescue plan. Jesus' resurrected body entering God's space. So often we've shied away from the ascension, the ascension because it seemed too weird <laughs> or unimportant or embarrassing, like Jesus blasting off, you know? We skipped over it when actually it means that Jesus is returning to the right hand of the Father to show off what it looks like for human beings to be saved. That now heaven has him as a temporary artifact of heavenly humanity before he comes back to make that true for the rest of his church. Paul and the church fathers were really fond of talking about this exchange, and they did it in a couple different ways, that Jesus might become poor, that we could become rich, that he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, or that he might become human, that we might become godly. The ascension furthers this. It illustrates this with incarnation and resurrection, that heaven became earthly so that earth could become heavenly. And this is the good news, that you're never off limits to heaven's invasion. God's grace won't allow you to earn love, to earn his love, but it says that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run away, how marred God's image has become in you because of sin, how lonely you are, how much you've hurt others or how much you've been beaten down by other people's sin, you're not beyond Christ's love. You're not beyond his ability to include you in his redemptive plans for this world. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. That's what heaven, what ascension tells us about heaven and earth. But what does ascension tell us about absence? Well, it's been called the, the hinge 
of Luke's two-part Luke-Acts writing. Luke closes his gospel with it, and then he re-narrates it right away in Acts. Uh, from chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates of how they are set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand around looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We find this short recounting um, what the disciples' expectation was. It was a political expectation. It was, and this is a, a big seminary word that you can ask Meredith about. It was an eschatological expectation that in the end, God's kingdom would be restored. His rule would spread. To that question, Jesus responds. They will be gifted God's Holy Spirit and they will be his witnesses. In that word witness, the, the Greek word sounds a whole lot like the word martyr. They will be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And then they experience Jesus' enigmatic absence. He leaves them in a cloud. Perhaps even a disheartening absence. How could Jesus leave now? He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. But don't get Jesus wrong here. This is no trick. It's not even an illusion. This is high drama. Demonstrating exactly what he's telling, what he's been telling them and fulfilling an ancient expectation God's people had for their Messiah. Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel's apocalyptic vision features one like the Son of Man. Daniel always uses the similes and metaphors. It's a fancy word, though, trying to grapple with someone representing humanity to the full. Humanity par excellence. And it's a title that shows up in, in Mark's gospel quite a bit. It, it kind of means the human one. The human one rides on the clouds and in his earthly absence becomes completely present before the Ancient of Days. Yahweh, the great I Am. And then he's given power, everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. In short, Jesus leaving us 
means Jesus stepping into his role as king over everything. It means that he now sits at the right hand of the Father and oversees the universe, big and small, looks at it all and says, mine. In our instruction in the meantime, with the help of the Holy Spirit, which is no small help, be my witnesses. Tell everyone about it. Tell each other. Look in the mirror and tell yourself that Christ has claim over all of it. Over our money, over our time, over our emotions, over our future, over the way we look at each other, the way we look at those who are not like us. Ask yourself, how would my life be different if I really thought Jesus was Lord over everything? How would my friendships and my relationships, my marriage be different if I thought that? How would this next political season be different if I really thought Jesus was the Lord over everything? There's another part of being a witness, that martyr type of witness, the very kind of witness Jesus bore on Calvary's cross. It's the type of witnessing that means that we have to bear that message not only on our lips but on our bodies. The medium of our lives must be the message of Christ. Our very bodies that Romans 12 calls a living sacrifice must tell the story of King Jesus. That means death on two feet for all of us. (laughs) A hundred small deaths every day. Death to ourselves, death to our desires, death to our dreams. Death to every allegiance that rubs up against Jesus as Lord. The ascension tells us that Jesus' absence allows him to be present to us in that commission, that spirit-empowered witness that anticipates his return to be our all in all. Scholar uh, Douglas Farrow, he puts it this way. Jesus' ascent to heaven, like his ascent to the cross, is a journey undertaken on behalf of God's people and with a view to the realization of their kingdom hopes. That that is the context in which the disciples are commissioned for their journeys. The outward spiral of the apostolic mission is the ripple in the sea that makes the upward passage of Jesus to receive what was promised. That's what the ascension tells us about absence. I don't know how I'm going to tell that to Noah. If Jesus' absence equates to a sort of presence, maybe his presence also, strangely, might look like an absence most of the time. So here's what the ascension tells us about his presence. That present absence should be comforting to us because in a world that seems sometimes to lack any truth, goodness, or beauty, we'd assume under a world, you know, it's hard to imagine that this is a world already under Christ. His absence hints, though, that it's a not-yet-all-the-way-there kingdom when he'll come again descending to judge and to put things right. In the meantime, we learn from his ascension about his presence in this world, and we learn two things. Two things that are true for the church. 
His Holy Spirit is active in the church and in the world. And that Jesus is present at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, holding us up in his prayers as our elder brother, as our high priest. This is the same Emmanuel from from Isaiah 7, from Matthew's Gospel. It's the same Emmanuel that closes Matthew's Gospel, commissioning his followers based on his ruling authority to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. And then he says, I am surely with you always, even to the end of the age. This Emmanuel, this God with us, says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so Jesus is with us. He's present to us in the Spirit. His with us was in flesh, now it's in spirit. And not in some vague spiritual sense, but the very Holy Spirit that was with God and was God from the beginning. Jesus gifting his spirit, which we get to celebrate next week at Pentecost, is no less of a God with us experience as that which we celebrate at Christmas. No less God, no less with us. And it's that spirit that hears our prayers, that even the ones we don't know how to form, it's that spirit that kind of puts our prayers together for us and pulls them out of us. It's that spirit that breathes new life and hope and possibility and healing into our fragile bodies, into our disobedient hearts. It's that spirit that transforms us by the renewing of our minds. That spirit that remakes us in small and big ways into pictures of Christ. Still so us, but also Christ. And that's such a mystery. Crucified and raised with Christ. The spirit that mysteriously hovers over the chaotic waters of our skin, sin-scarred world in order to make it new so that this new creation includes us will be very good. It's this spirit who's called a, called a lot of things, called a, a wind, called a fire, called a paraclete, that one who comes alongside of us. A spirit that's called a comforter, who's elusive and profuse. Living in the spirit means being alive to God, a responsive and obedient participant in how God has already gone before us to renew his creation. Living in the Spirit means plucking the fruits of a life lived on the vine. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus being present to us means being present in the Spirit. It also means being present for us to the Father. Finally, Jesus' absence from us creates an opportunity for him to be present to the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Even as he reigns as heavenly king, he turns a sympathetic ear to the prayers the Spirit brings from us. So we approach God's graceful throne through Christ with confidence in our time of need. The writer of Hebrews is sure of one thing, that we need God, (laughs) that we're lost without him, that there will be a time of need. We can also have confidence that Jesus gets us. Confidence that Jesus is for us. Confidence that there's room for every concern, every hurt, every anxiety. And Scripture reminds us we cast those anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. And also because he shared our experience and he now sits next to his heavenly Father telling him about us. In the midst of all that throne language, it's easy to lose sight of the family language here. Jesus, while he's the Prince of Peace, is also our elder brother. And God, while Heavenly King, is also our Father. And the heavenly throne room from which they rule might also double as a kitchen table where they're sitting around chatting about us, concerned for us, sick over us. And that's the good news. That God become, becoming present to us in Christ means that he'll never not care about us. When God put that kind of skin in the game that he did in the incarnation, it means that we have the chance by believing Christ to be united to Christ. To have God look at us the way he looks at Jesus. To be caught up with the Spirit into this divine life to participate in what Jesus is doing in the world. The ascension of the resurrected Jesus is good news for us. For how we expect God to bring about the new creation, his grand project to reunite heaven and earth. And for how we understand Jesus' absence from us and we, we pray and we long and we hope for his return for how we feel and experience his presence among us in his spirit and before the Father hearing our prayers. Will you guys pray with me? Spirit, we thank you for opening our lips that our mouths might declare God's praise. Jesus, we thank you for hearing our prayers and interceding on our behalf before your merciful Father, our merciful Father. And God, we thank you for your grace, for bringing your Son back to you from the far country of this world that killed him, and looking at him and and seeing what's coming when you're going to renew it all. Father, help us be people, be a church that anticipates us, that lives into that even when we look around and it doesn't really look like you're in charge. Help us trust you with our lives, with everything in our lives, with our choices. 
with our futures, with our relationships. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, for, for being in our shoes in every way but sin and being able to empathize with us. Father, let us feel your presence in our midst. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let us work with your Spirit to share your good news, to be witnesses with our voices, with our bodies in this world. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. And pray all this in the name of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus. Amen.